Welcome to Music in the Church with Sarah Bariza, a monthly podcast about thinking bigger in our faith, our ministries, and our churches. I'm Dr. Sarah Bariza, a writer and musician, and today I am joined by some of the authors of Flow, The Ancient Way to Do Contemporary Worship. And today, Lester Ruth, Adam Perez, and Zach Barnes are with me, and next month we'll have an episode with the other four contributors to this volume. And each person is going to introduce themselves a little bit, and then we are going to dive into this really fascinating and accessible book on working with contemporary worship styles or um, aesthetics in a traditional mainline type service. So um, Lester, would you introduce yourself briefly? Sure, Sarah. It's nice to be back with you. Um, My name is Lester Ruth. I'm the worship professor at Duke Divinity School. And Lester was one of my lovely, lovely guinea pigs. He and Sui Hong Lim were on an episode, I think episode three of Music in the Church. Um, And I was like emailing people that I kind of sort of knew. And I was like, so I'm starting this thing and I don't know what I'm doing. But um, and now here we are in the 50s. So thank you, Lester, for doing that. (laughs) I'm very pleased to know that uh, we did not drive everyone away. (laughs) Yes. And uh, Adam, would you introduce yourself? Yeah, hi everyone. I'm Adam Perez. I am a rising fifth year Doctor of Theology student at Duke Divinity School, a member of the Christian Reformed Church in North America, and I'm also a musician, and uh, my area of study is liturgical studies, working on praise and worship history. And Zach, how about you? My name is Zach Barnes. I am a 2019 graduate of Duke Divinity, and uh, I am a native North Carolinian. And in February of this year, my wife and I launched a church in the city of Greensboro. So um, all of this stuff is uh, what we're dealing with and how to construct services in ways that are faithful and fruitful. So uh, excited to be a part of this conversation. Lester is going to guide us into the big scope of this book. and. Tell us, like, what, what even is this about? What are we, what, what's the project here? So the book really came out of a sense of um, frustration. The best um, books always do, right? Hopefully, um, hopefully this is a good book. Um, we think it is. Um, frustration in that both me and the other collaborator, collaborators, many of the contemporary services we see in mainline congregations seem to be clunky. If they were intended to be eight cylinders engines, they're running on four to six cylinders. I mean, just the, the power, the clunky, the power's not there, the clunkiness is. They seem to be missing something. We were also kind of distressed by those instances in mainline contemporary services where they're trying to bring in aspects or elements from their um, denominational worship resources. For instance, when they were trying to do baptism or communion, or um, trying to figure out some way to mix the order of worship that they saw in their resources with their contemporary service. And and many times that's where the clunkiness came. So uh, the book actually uh, emerged out of a class project. I had a fairly large class, um, about two dozen students organized into multiple working groups. And um, the premise was really easy. Here's the fourfold word and table order of worship um, from, we use the United Methodist resource from our book of worship. Here's all this Pentecostal literature on how to achieve good flow 
in contemporary praise and worship, do this order of worship in a way that these Pentecostals would feel comfortable in. Can you tell us what fourfold worship is? I think many sure. know it, but we don't necessarily know that term. Ah, okay. Um, it's a shorthand term, probably originated by Robert Weber, to describe kind of this balanced order that appears in all the mainline denominations now. There's The first fold is gathering, assembling, and um, preparing ourselves to worship. The second fold is the Word of God, and so you normally get multiple scripture readings and responses to those climaxing with the sermon. The third fold is that period of response after the sermon, um, in which the Lord's Supper has the centerpiece. Um, and then the fourth fold is the disassembling, the sending forth, um, the commissioning of people to go back and uh, do their lives and worship in the world. Uh, the order is often called word and table because that uh, period of extensive scripture and then the gathering around the table are kind of the centerpiece in the fourfolds themselves. Now, as I understand it, many Catholic and Eastern Orthodox services, like we would understand that kind of liturgy to be very similar to this because, well, this is coming out of an ancient pattern and that's where Catholic Mass, the Orthodox Divine Liturgy is coming from. So we can see that continuity there. But in mainline services, this is a pretty recent development to have a form like this, yeah? Oh, uh, absolutely. Um, one of the after effects of the Protestant Reformation is that Protestant orders of worship went all over the map. And so this fourfold order is a reclamation from the first centuries of the church. And it, um, it was part of an ecumenical liturgical movement to kind of promote this starting in the 60s and 70s. And so um, particularly Methodists and Presbyterians especially would have seen a major overhaul in the sort of order of worship being proposed in their denominational resources. And probably also in the frequency of receiving communion. That was part of it, because one of the ancient norms is that communion is a weekly um, event. It is, um, it is the centerpiece of Sunday morning. Uh, the day of resurrection is matched by the ongoing gift and power of God, as evidenced on the table in the, in the coming of the body of Christ to the body of Christ. In reading flow, I didn't realize something that was happening historically in the 80s and 90s, which is that you have the rise of what we call the worship wars. Are we going to have drums in the church? That kind of thing. And I didn't quite realize that this was happening alongside the rise of the fourfold worship pattern in mainline liturgies. Yes, um, it was. Um, unfortunately, the folks did not know each other or work well together. And in many respects, they were antagonistic from the very beginning. But amazingly, uh, they parallel each other in terms of when they kind of got their feet on the ground and when they were being heavily promoted. For Methodists, I'm a Methodist, that period was the late 80s into the 1990s. And this is something that you, in this volume, you and your collaborators are arguing that actually this works really well together. These aren't two separate things that have to remain separate and it's a clunky marriage if you put them together. You're actually saying, no, this can work really, really well and complement and make each side better. Yeah, that's the heart of the book, actually. And to try to make that point, we went back to one of the most important quotes in the history of worship, um, 
this description of worship from Justin Martyr in the mid-2nd century, which is a dominant text for all these recent revisions. And essentially, what Justin Martyr says is the people gather on Sundays, and then we read from the Old and New Testament, and we have a sermon, and then we get to the period of extensive prayers, and then comes the gathering around the table, and then we all go home. He describes the fourfold order in a way. But what we did is we did a close read on that Justin Martyr passage and teased out three elements that he describes but are often overlooked. Uh, one of them is an open-endedness to time. Um, so the service has a distinct order to it, from gathering to word to table to dismissal, but the time is not tight. It's not completely scripted. And he really gets at that, especially when he says, uh, we read scripture as long as time permits. Well, I'm, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't, they don't have a rocket scientist realized that means somebody's having to discern when's the appropriate time to move on to the next thing, which in the history of contemporary worship is a major sort of capacity that the worship leader has to have. The second thing that we found in Justin was extemporaneity. None of the prayers are written down. So when they pray, they're praying from the heart. Again, a very commonplace aspect of leadership in contemporary services. And then the third thing, uh, this third point of connection between contemporary services and what you can see in Justin Martyr is the description of the order not by labeling things, but by describing a sequence of actions. And in the history of contemporary praise and worship, um, starting in the 70s especially, but 70s and 80s, that's how the order of contemporary praise and worship is always described, as by sequence of key actions, which is exactly what Justin Martyr does. So sequence of key actions, extemporaneity, and open-endedness of time, elements that are intrinsic in contemporary worship, but also found in Justin Martyr's uh, description of a fourfold order. When you're talking about the fourfold order in services today, I was so fascinated because it's so spot on. Um, you talked about, well, we have these sequence of actions, but the action is often obscured. So for instance, we have a doxology. Well, doxology is the action of praise, yeah. but we call it the doxology and we mean old hundredth and everybody stand up because you gave your offering, you know? Yeah, see, it, Justin Martyr, if he had wanted to describe that, he wouldn't have said, and then we do the doxology. He would have said something like this, and then with one voice, we praise the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, which is what the doxology is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and so it, it, what, it seems to me what you're doing is you're saying, look, we're already doing this. It's just obscured. And you have this, um, you make the point, I'll, I'll quote from you. It became easier to think of word and table, that's the fourfold worship, as a sequence of liturgical objects, not as a flow of worshiping actions. Yeah. When I've taught on this, sometimes I will mention something that I've seen, not a lot, but I have seen this. People actually sit there with their bulletins, and as a certain thing is done, they will check it off. And whenever I've taught on this, uh, people in the audience will say, yep, I've seen that too, <laughs> which, which indicates they're not seeing the whole thing as a 
flow of continuous action, they're seeing it almost as independent or semi-independent things. And we got that done, so let's move on to the next thing. I think this is where I confess that I did that as a child. Uh, but, you know, when I was a child, I thought like a child. And I, oh. I made tally marks of the pastor's uh, verbal idiosyncrasies. Because oh. <laughs> so bad. But literal tally marks of of his ums or whatever they were yeah there i got that off my chest (laughs) well um one of the points i try to make in the book and and it's it's one of the things i'm most pleased with is almost the psychology of having word and table a fourfold order on a page with the individual acts of worship identified and sequenced top to bottom on a page what what sort of consciousness that that creates subtly of what this is and what's going on. It almost reminds me, or it does remind me, of um, back in the day I used to used to do chant. That was my master's thesis on uh, Gregorian chant, not Gregorian chant, Beneventan chant. Um, but I'm thinking of how chant became codified. So you have this taught to an oral tradition with lots of improvisation, and then you write it down, and once it's written down, this is the way it has to be. And this is this is the form, and if you depart from it, you know, potential. If I could, if I could jump in here too, I think this is also the case for contemporary worship resources that were published for mainline congregations. Is that they took that same logic of the traditional order of worship, its actions, and they said, okay, well, instead of this, you do this. Instead of this, you do this, and it it followed from the same logic, uh, but just sort of replaced one object with another object and didn't think about the logic of what was happening and why it was happening. And I think that's part of really, uh, really what we're trying to get at is that that underlying logic and framework for how you go about leading a service and leading worship in this way, rather than just um, planning worship in this way or ordering, organizing worship in this way. I like doing that, the swap. Oh, instead of the opening hymn, we'll have a three song set with a drum. Oh, we have a contemporary service. Yeah, uh, an image I use sometimes, and it's not in the book because we didn't want to keep compounding, conflating metaphors and images, but I I like the idea of a computer interface and operating system. And um, in my mind, when a lot of mainline churches wanted to implement contemporary services in the 80s and 90s, they adopted the interface, what it looked like Mm -hmm. in the immediate but they didn't adopt the operating system of this logic that Adam just talked about. And so they're they're still doing mid-century traditional worship. They're just doing it with different instruments, um, a different song repertoire, and a cup of coffee in their hands. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's still mid-century Protestant worship. It's it's not truly contemporary in, in what contemporary praise and worship originally was about. And I think that's an important piece too, just thinking that what we're trying to do also is speak and draw from the goods of praise and worship to do this work, to write this book. We're not just saying, again, here's another veneer on mainline worship, but actually there are goods in praise and worship that we're trying to make available to mainline congregations uh, that isn't just, yeah, a superficial or uh, isn't a veneer on the on the order of worship. I think that's really a, a crucial piece of, uh, a, a crucial posture toward um, praise and worship that's not often 
uh, held in in uh, a lot of traditional contexts, which is maybe why they end up with orders of worship that are um, that are just the surface level contemporized, but not uh, not deep in the in the in the heart of it. I think that's why I see a lot of relevance here for Roman Catholic liturgies, where you know you as the church musician are not you're not empowered to change the liturgy, right? That's not your job. <laughs> but I think in looking at this book, you can see a lot of ways of like saying, oh, here's how I can you know, improve on what I'm doing as a musician here. And it's particularly for um, Roman Catholics and Lutherans and Episcopalians and Anglicans. It's one of the reasons I really wanted to start with that description of Justin Martyr, to kind of give it a historic pedigree that these, these key sensibilities of classic contemporary praise and worship, which are all Pentecostal in their late 20th century origins, these were actually found in the early church too. Mm -hmm. And so they have a historical pedigree. They are patristic. We do not need to be afraid of them, even this if we're is, This is where uh, I'm, I'm Orthodox. I work in a mainland church, but I'm Orthodox. And this is where, this is where like uh, Orthodox texts on worship that are geared towards say like evangelicals or something. They're like, well, we start with Justin Martyr. And, you know, so it's, it's, it's you know, it's kind of going to the heart saying, look, look, this is legit. We didn't just make this up. Zach, could you tell us about the Pentecostal history side, the history of flow leading up to this? We've been talking about mainline history, worship wars, that kind of stuff, but you have written in the book about where the flow side of things is coming from. Absolutely. Um, I enjoyed writing this chapter because I come out of the Pentecostal tradition, so I was um, some of these things that we did within my tradition. I, I got to read some of some sources on it as it was developing. Um, and so um, you, you could go back, you could go farther back, but we started in the 70s and kind of worked our way up to the present. And um, I, I, I just want to highlight, I think, also in this description, some of the some of the works that really were important in the development. Um, but even in the mid 70s, we start to see with some of the uh, earliest uh, vineyard fellowships that uh, in Southern California, they're meeting for extended times of congregational singing. Uh, and, and, and the description was this congregational singing that was extended. It, it felt natural. There was this sense of nothing being forced. Uh, you know, it wasn't just the music, but there was this singing. There was this um, love among people. There was this evident work of the Holy Spirit that was among people. People are praying for one another. Uh, musicians are shifting from one song to another. And so we start, we're starting to see just these ideas of flow that are developing. And then you, and then you get one of the major works that we mentioned in this section was David Blomgren's um, uh, 1978 book on the Song of the Lord and how, how important that has been to just the overall uh, development of flow within contemporary worship. Uh, Blomgren was a Pentecostal and starts speaking about this system of flowing, how to achieve good flow. Um, and, and you start to see that singing these scriptural courses. Um, what, one of the interesting things I found that is different with the earlier uh, practitioners of flow versus later ones is the earlier ones, there is this more of a sense of extempor extemporaneous singing. Whereas by the time you get to the thousands, even now, 
no, no church is going up there with a, a list of songs and deciding which one to sing in the moment. You know, they, they you know, um, some worship pastors I've spoken to are planning out their singing two to three weeks in advance. But, you know, many of these early practitioners of flow would, were suggesting that you would have a list and you would categorize that list. You'd have uh, songs of the same category or songs of the same tempo. Uh, songs of the same, uh, in the same key, you know, uh, and, and you would basically flow in those moments, choosing those songs as you felt led of the Holy Spirit, as you felt was, a, uh, was appropriate. And there were some practical considerations that are given um, uh, from individuals during this time. You know, you don't want to go from a fast song to a slow song back to a fast, fast song because it messes with the energy of the people. It kind of throws them off a little bit and uh, you know, those are some important practical considerations. Um, but I, I found that interesting as I was looking at the at the historical development of flow, uh, that there's just this sense of extemporaneous song choice at times. And if I remember correctly, uh, Dr. Ruth can correct me if I'm wrong here, but in your case study on uh, Vineyard Anaheim, uh, when, when John Wimber is there, uh, they don't have a song uh, list as far as one that they select ahead of time, it was in the moment. Isn't that correct, uh, Dr. Ruth? Yeah, that's that's correct. In the first years of uh, John Wimber's Anaheim Vineyard congregation, they didn't do any pre-selection until the worship leader was at the microphone and he prayed inwardly as to where they should start, and that's where they started, and um, and they just went from there for 50 minutes. Yeah, you know, and, and I think key to flow as a whole, and, and, and Blomgren really kind of hits this, is this um, idea of just spiritual sensitivity. You know, you, you don't want a disruption, a break in the flow. You, you want to um, ensure your ability to be aware of God's presence and to discern God's presence. I mean, so, so we, we see that in the 70s. Um, you know, by the time we get to the to the 80s, you can't, uh, you, you can't forget uh, the name of Bob Sword, who Who's, who's writing on worship. In fact, I saw a, uh, a Pentecostal charismatic pastor a few months ago before uh, all of this COVID-19 stuff really uh, came to the forefront, who was at a conference, and he mentioned that Bob had such an impact on him. And so Bob's just been an influential uh, name there. Um, and I think one of the things that jumps out about about Bob is his encouragement to worship leaders uh, to work with musicians to this ensure this steady, this consistent uh, rhythm um, to ensure that flow is at work within within worship. It is this is this integration. So we're, what we're starting to see is historically the worship leader was the one behind the pulpit, but there is this kind of shift within some contemporary circles that the worship leader uh, is the one behind the guitar or the one who who is. Um, leading singing. By the, time, by the time we get into the 90s, we're starting to see the ecumenical direction of the contemporary movement. What starts out among charismatics and Pentecostals, by the 90s, you have Baptists. I mean, you've got Don McMinn, who was a praise and worship leader at a large Baptist church in Oklahoma, who's writing The Practice of Praise, a handbook on worship renewal. You know, he's arguing for a typical form of contemporary worship. There's this ecumenical nature. And as we alluded to already, um, in our discussion, this is the time worship wars are kind of going on. Uh, and so contemporary worship is taking this on this ecumenical uh, orientation. But by the, by the 2000s, uh, if, if I'm going to highlight someone in the 2000s, you know, I would really like to highlight uh, Paul Belash, uh, who just 
who did a, a lot. I mean, his historic leading worship, creating flow instructional DVD that was just that was used by many people. That, and, and his whole thing in that particular DVD is he is instructing people. So, so that's kind of like just a general kind of seeing what's happening. So Zach just made reference to Paul Balash that DVD. If any of the listeners wanted to see what it was that Zach was talking about, if you'll go to YouTube and just put in Paul Balash, B-A-L-O-C-H-E, flow, uh, you can pull up this 10-minute video of Paul Balash explaining how to get good flow. Cool. Very fun. And that's in, in uh, next month's episode, we'll be talking about the second half of the book. By the way, you should just go and buy the book. It's like 15 bucks. Just, you know, then <laughs> you can read it and you can, get, you can get ahead of next month's episode and learn, learn all these techniques. I'm wondering, can we, Zach, can we talk some about the why of this? Because something that fascinates me as someone who's not on the contemporary scene at all, I do some blended worship, and didn't grow up charismatic Pentecostal at all, grew up independent Baptist. Um, I have been so fascinated by the theological impetus on the part of Pentecostals for flow, for contemporary worship, and then how folks who with a very different understanding of what worship, or at least as I see it, different understanding of worship, different understanding of what God's presence means, um, what it means to be in God's presence, um, adopt contemporary worship or adopt Pentecostal practices, even though the theology is really different. Yeah, definitely. I think, I think at the core of it is people are wanting to encounter God. And according to these charismatic Pentecostal authors, now, like I said, as, as we get to Later in time, it starts to diversify, and you have uh, non-Pentecostal, non-Charismatics who are writing on this. But flow, especially for those early authors, is, no pun intended, endued uh, with a certain ability uh, to, facilitate, um, uh, to in- facilitate an encounter with the presence of the Lord. So Pentecostal worship, Pentecostal um, theology with an emphasis on the Holy Spirit, and, and this encounter with God, this lived experience, this pursuit of the presence of God. It's at the very core of what, of what Pentecostals do. Um, so a worship service, whether for good or bad, is judged based on the encounter with the presence of God. And so I, I think these writers, especially the early charismatic Pentecostals, are trying to put into words the best way to do this. And, and, and this, this notion of flow, this, this being sensitive to the Holy Spirit, so the, the, the life of the Spirit is just, you know, not just being sensitive to the Spirit outside of worship, but also within worship. And what the Spirit would do in this particular context, this particular day, drives the Pentecostal um, vision of, of worship. And I think, you know, I think especially as, as culture was shifting and there was this, this desire to be authentic, whatever that may look like, right? Um, this, this, has, this desire to be reflective of one's context um, I think that's why many churches probably sought to adapt to that contemporary worship, um, as well as I, I think there is something uh, beautiful about it, this sense of being dependent on the Holy Spirit and the leading of the Spirit in a particular way. Not that those who, who didn't do flow weren't dependent on the Holy Spirit, but in this particular way, I think there's something beautiful about it that adds to the worship service. Adam, you look like you have something to say. Well, I was just going to say one thing I I really like about the, well, it's a blessing and a curse, I guess, about the word flow is, uh, and Zach, you can can clarify this for me, but um, the way a lot of early Pentecostal charismatic writers were talking about it wasn't just about the experience of flow in the congregation 
question, but about sort of hitching up onto God, the flow of God and this sort of sense that our worship sort of, uh, sort of gets on, it gets in the water with the flow of the spirit. Um, so the, the flow isn't coming just from some, some, you know, personal discerning action of the worship leader, but that God is doing something already and we're, we're trying to get, come along with it. Um, and so the flow of God, uh, precipitates the flow of worship and those two things, you know, the experience and the, the, that larger cosmic reality are, are sort of, yeah, sinking like up river, in that moment. A river that is just going and you step into the river and you go with it. Yeah, and I and uh, and I think over time the the conversation about flow, as Zach was just narrating, it moves much more in the sense of just the experience of it as a sort of phenomen phenomenological thing. I think if we can use that word for this, uh-huh. yeah. um, rather than a deep spiritual experience of uh, feeling like you're um, connected with yeah that that discerning presence of God. Adam, I think you're I think you're right on that. I mean, because early Pentecostals charismatics would talk about people missing it in a service, right? They, they, they didn't discern appropriately what God was doing. So there's this sense, like you were saying, flow is about getting into what God is doing among us, not just this sense of us putting together things that, that flow well in a service. But man, there's this sense of, of, of getting involved with what God is doing among us. And, and that's why uh, key to a lot of those early authors that I, I mentioned was this sense of, spiritual discernment to know what God is doing and to, to get into that flow, as well as uh, one's own spiritual spirituality and, and, and character as a way to uh, clearly discern what's going on. So we have been dancing around the word flow, and we've been using it a lot, but we haven't actually said, well, what do we mean by that? And I'm wondering, Adam, can you tell us, what, what are we actually talking about here? Uh, I can try. I think maybe it might take all of us. Um... And partly to to what I was just saying is that it, I think it's both that uh, that experience of worship and this uh, this deeper discernment of how God is acting in our midst when we gather for worship. As we're talking about it, uh, particularly in the book, where I mean, a lot of it is very practical, sort of uh, strategic in how you achieve flow um, as an experience in worship, as something that the worshipers experience. Um, and it's characteristic of the event of worship. So the worship service itself has a flow to it. So that's kind of the operative way I think the book approaches this for the most part. So we're thinking about a particular event that has this experience of flow. And Dr. Ruth talked about those um, three aspects uh, that we're drawing from Justin Martyr. And, and we sort of follow in the book from those three aspects as we talk about the sort of strategic approach to achieving flow uh, as a uh, as it pertains to time and extemporaneity, those kinds of things. We meet God in the present moment, right? That this is where we encounter God in the present moment. And if we're thinking about flow, flow is about being like, not flow specifically in the context of worship, but just like if we're talking about flow in a more secular sense of, I want to be in a state of flow as I'm writing or as I'm cooking or as I'm whatever my activity is, we're talking about being in the present moment and being there, right? And not, not thinking about the future so much, not about the past. And what we're, I think what y'all are arguing is that we meet God in the present moment. We want to, as worship leaders, as pastors, we want to facilitate people being in the present moment, basically being mindful. I think what we're suggesting in the book is that we can actually, through our worship planning and leadership, help our congregations, help our communities have that depth dimension of attention to the moment. 
And in that moment, like you said, uh, having an experience of an encounter with God or being aware of the presence of God, um, the, the experience of flow doesn't uh, increase or decrease the amount of God's presence. But, you know, we're talking about our, our attentiveness to it, our, our perceptual, our, uh, our capacity to have our congregations with us in God's divine story in the moment uh, in worship. Um, and those strategies that we offer are aimed at helping achieve that in our worship services. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's such a, I think, an important part about God's presence. We're not saying that God disappears on us or that we have to do some magic hocus pocus to get God mm-hmm. to come and talk to us. That's not at all mm-hmm. what this is about. Go ahead, I Zach. think that's key, what you just said, what you just said Adam. And Sarah, it's, it's not about increasing the presence of God among us, right? God's presence is among us. When we feel the presence of God, that's an act of grace. But it's about making sure that we are attentive and aware of that presence. And there are ways that we can uh, can do that. And that's what many of those authors that I mentioned, and uh, especially all of them in, in that particular chapter, they're concerned with creating an atmosphere where we can be attentive to the presence of God. We can be aware of the presence of God in certain ways. Yeah, if I can use an analogy... Imagine looking through a camera that you don't have focused, and if it's badly out of focus, the thing that you're looking at is still there, but it's just very, very blurry. But you adjust the lenses, and then all of a sudden you have crispness to it. And that's what these early advocates of flow would be saying. With the good flow, you're bringing a crispness to the focus of being in the presence of God and having the chance to be encountered by God. It's not that God wasn't there. It's just like, no, this presence is now manifest because of the crispness of focus. I know that, um, at least as I understand it, Pentecostals wouldn't normally use the term sacramental. But to me, that sounds so sacramental in the sense of, you know, the water is already blessed. The water is already good. When we bless the water or when we baptize the baby, we're acknowledging what is, it's already there, right? It's, it's like seeing things as they are, in, in that cosmic reality. Um, you, know, you know, Sarah, you were, you were mentioning that historically, Pentecostals have not used the word sacramental. However, there is a movement among Pentecostal scholars to, to recognize that there is an inherent sacramentality to Pentecostal theology of mm-hmm. Pentecostal. Yeah. yeah. I it's mean, like, just, well, here's a nice so word I, for it, but we're already doing it. <laughs> exactly. And, um, you know, there's, in particular, there's one author, Chris Green, who writes on um, a Pentecostal view of the Lord's Supper. That's And one of his uh, arguments in that particular book is, you know, that Pentecostals have this inherent sacramentality, and you, you start to see that once you parse it out. They don't like that word historically, uh, but it is there. So we're talking about fourfold worship, and we can't forget this part of the table, the word and the table. And this is such a big shift in mainline congregations, right? And it's many mainline congregations do not have the table every week, right? Um, and Adam, could you talk a little bit to that? Yeah. So um, so one thing we're, we're advocating for in the book is, um, and in, in my chapter in particular, what I'm advocating for is thinking about uh, a response to God's word every week. Um, so the response not just being uh, a pastoral prayer and then sending you off to, to live more justly and you know, to love God more and as you get ascending, but um, reclaiming kind of that element of the fourfold order that uh, the table has traditionally held, uh, which is having some substantive, substantial 
response to God's word. So in uh, use the example of the Methodist order of worship in the book, the third fold of the United Methodist order of worship has this segment called Thanksgiving and communion or table. And it's marked by the activities specifically of the table of, you know, actually the intro to the, to the table, the confession, the, um, the distribution, you know, all that, those elements. And what suggesting in this chapter is actually that piece, the table itself is part of a larger response to God's word, which in, might include other elements. For example, reading the creeds together or, doing some sort of, uh, you know, uh, affirmation of faith more broadly um, is part of the ways in which we respond to having heard God's word. And that we're sort of giving a bigger umbrella for that response time than simply, uh, you know, okay, uh, you know, the table is the table and that's the, uh, the main, um, that's the only thing that goes in response. So, uh, so just trying to break open the question of how is that we respond to the, to the word each week if we're not practicing table the table every week, which is, you know, historically the kind of the normal, the normal pattern. Um, and then from there, after having responded to God's word, having uh, in the table or in some other alternative response, then moving on to, to ascending or going forth from there. Lester, you have an appendix in the book. It's a lovely little, like two and a half pages. Here's how to do communion in a contemporary worship service. Yeah, let me, before I get into the details, let me give a little bit of background on why I wanted to write that chapter and, or that appendix, where it came from. And it's actually something I've been chewing on for a while, even before I moved to North Carolina nine years ago. In my previous school, one of the sources for that appendix was an Easter vigil that we did at the school one year. But the style they decided for the Easter vigil would be contemporary. So we had to figure out some place to put the long music set um, because it didn't seem to fit at the beginning because you had the entrance with the light and the exalted, and then we had all these scripture readings. So what we decided, and we said, this is a vigil, and so after the proclamation of the resurrection, that seems the appropriate time for this kind of blowout of praise, which a music set usually is. So that's what we did, is we did the music set two-thirds of the way through the service as the setup for communion. Oh, that's fantastic. And the, the emotional character flowed wonderfully because the music set just had us in this near ecstatic falling over in terms of high praise for God. And then we went to the table, which the tradition tells us, this is the place where it is always right and good and joyful and a just thing to ever give you thanks and praise, O oh Lord. You know, so it's like, you know, perhaps we ought to start re-envisioning some of these things. And so that was kind of one origins. It's like, how can you reconnect the dynamic use of music and contemporary worship with gathering at the table itself? That was juxtaposed against um, a situation at a mega church just down from where I live. In fact, I had to drive by this church to get to work. And this mega church was part of the restoration movement. It was a Christian church. That was the denomination it belonged to. So by tradition, it was obligated to have weekly communion. But because they had built their entire liturgical life on contemporary worship, they couldn't figure out what to do with communion. So it was the most pitiful thing that you had ever seen. They essentially put out tables at the back and set out the elements and at the very end of the service, they essentially said, and as you're leaving, make sure you pick up your communion. Oh, my word. 
This so it was the kind of the most minimalist approach that you could ever think of, but they knew they had to do it. Is this in the context of a service like, you know, we're talking about fourfold worship, but this is the type of service where it's like music, music, prayers, choir anthem, that kind of stuff. And then the second half is a sermon. Like, would that have been their format? Yes, but no choir. So music, okay. essentially music set, transitional prayer to the sermon, single scripture reading, sermon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Goodbye. Grab, Goodbye grab and make sure your you pick up your communion as you're leaving. Okay. <laughs> um, and, you know, I thought on that. Surely there's some better way. Surely. <laughs> if the heart of contemporary worship is praise, which it is, and if the standard Eucharistic prayers always begin, it is a right and just and a good thing to always and everywhere to give thanks and praise to you, Almighty God, that there ought to be some way to make these two things live together. Your hope. <laughs> yeah, and so this appendix is an attempt to tease out some specific ideas. Part of it is about framing um, the consecratory prayer and, and the reception of communion with um, music sets. Part of it is about more kind of dynamic um, use of music and achieving good flow. Um, which involves cycling and repetition, standard kind of techniques in contemporary worship. Um, part of it comes back to the um, capacity of the, the presider, however, and I strongly advocate memorizing so that you can internalize the liturgy that your denomination gives you. So you're not tied to the book, um, which draws the tension down, restricts physical movement, You've got it internalized that allows everything to open up, allows things to be lifted up towards the Lord, and it allows um, spirit-led improvising um, that in a way being strictly tied to the book doesn't allow. I know in some traditions that probably would be very, very suspect. In Orthodox traditions, I'm not sure how much the priest can improvise, but I'm Methodist, and um, so my Methodist and Presbyterians and uh, Disciples of Christ and perhaps even my Lutheran, Episcopal, and Anglican friends, we can all improvise just a little bit. I, I used, I used to work in a Catholic church, and I was amazed at how much those priests would improvise. Mostly in the interest of getting people out in 45 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> but, Unless <laughs> part of part of what you're getting at, right, is that what you're improvising is the con the sort of companion content to what the prayer already does. So these heaping up of praises, this attention to God's activity. I mean, you're you're drawing from the same patterns, the same kind of core content, which which is already present in the Eucharistic prayer. Not just improvising on anything. Um, this is about the action of it, right? We've been talking about like liturgical objects and actions, and this is about the action of it. Absolutely. Um, and it, the, internal, the internalization is not just the words, but it's actually what it's doing. And as you've said elsewhere, I think, Dr. Ruth, the, uh, the contemporary worship songs have just about as, uh, some of them have just about as much of that, like, heaping up of the phrases as a, a great Thanksgiving prayer does, which, you know, the great Thanksgiving prayer is not altogether logical or um it's it's an accumulation of praises over centuries, right? This Yeah, I mean it would take I mean just consider the Sanctus. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. 
Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. That's, that's just a fourth century praise course. It's, it's about three or four disconnected scriptures fused together without obvious logical sequencing. Um, and it's not hard to imagine doing that on an acoustic guitar where you don't just sing it once, but you sing it multiple times and bring in the, um, the rhythm dynamics and backing them out, um, you know, adding in different sort of vocal dynamics, all the sort of techniques you get a contemporary worship. It's not hard to imagine doing the song twos mm -hmm. in that manner. And even letting the congregation continue to sing it as the uh, pastor begins to pray the rest of the consecratory prayer over the top of it. Again, in many respects, the Orthodox already do this. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, the difficulty, and if any Orthodox are listening, realize I'm a Protestant, so I'm going to bang just a little bit. The difficulty is that the prayer is said is not said in a loud enough voice so that the congregation can hear it too, yeah. as well as what the choir is singing. Yep. Yeah. So, so I, I see what you're saying where you can have, if you're, especially for singing a chorus, you know, the, where, the, where the words are repeated, you can also hear. Yeah. So what we're advocating and what I'm advocating in the during a communion is not just harmonization with the literal musical notes itself, but the harmonization between the musical and the spoken and the emotional elements this is that are all wrapped a up in big community. thing what you're saying is not at all music is background music or unimportant you're saying this is like a wonderful marriage of complementary elements i think this is the this is one of those real challenges for uh what for lack of a better word traditional church musicians is that sense that we have our piece and i say we uh as a church musician we have our piece and we do it and uh, the service sort of like stops before us and begins again after us, or, you know, we're part of it, but we don't, we're not integrated with other actions in the service. I mean, I'm thinking of uh, any symphony where, where a theme returns, you know, counter theme returns over top of some, I mean, you wouldn't say to the violins like, oh, like, you know, that theme is not important. No, what the layering itself is the thing that gives it that depth dimension is having them happen at the same time is is uh, added value not detracting from the value of one thing so i want to get on my church musician soapbox listeners to this podcast have heard me talk about this before if you're in a church that treats the musicians as you know the hireling that shows up for 100 bucks on sunday mornings to play the hymns that the pastor hands them like well that's all you can do but in contemporary worship even if you just have volunteers who are leading you know, just quote unquote, but if you, no matter who's leading, they are integral to the spiritual leadership of the service. And I think in mainline, mainline churches, that's a huge missed, huge missed opportunity. I get to say this because I'm the actual minister of music at a church. Thank God that's not where I am. But in so many churches, it's just like, well, show up and pray, play the prelude and postlude and also shut up and you're not a spiritual leader. And the challenge of viewing, I mean, a particular generation that, that I've interacted with of church musicians who see themselves as preservers of a tradition, this is very threatening because mm -hmm. it's suggesting that preserving a certain tradition of church music as such is not the, their primary function, in, at least at this moment in the service and at this moment in the sort of divine action of worship. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah, I mean, there are still other times for choir anthems. There are other times for these other sort of standalone one-off events, but also, but mm -hmm. more. 
Yeah. Yeah. There's, this is so much uh, more integrated and so much more spiritually driven. Um, and, and I say this as someone who tries to use elements of this in a very traditional kind of worship. The, the, to me, this isn't about musical style so much as motivation and spirituality and understanding of the cohesive element of the table. The, the yeah, I'm happy to. I'm happy to to ride on the uh, contemporary church musicians too, who've adopted the same logic of you know, well, like I have my pads set up to do a certain thing, and my loops and my tracks, and I've got my stuff to you know to basically facilitate a three minute and thirty seven second version of this song. So uh, you know, this is going to go for three minutes. I see the countdown clock in the back. Like mm-hmm. this is all orchestrated as highly as you know uh, a. Beethoven symphony and even even with the loops and uh, returns of the same melody I mean we know how long it's going to go we have it scripted to a T um, that's not what we're advocating in this in this uh, in this book and around the practices of the table particularly that that there's a dynamic interaction that we can plan for to be fair but it doesn't consist in the musicians understanding their role as independent from the other actions of the service we just said a lot. Is there anything we want to say as we wrap up? I appreciate you encouraging people to buy the book. I, we hope they will, not that we benefit from it, but all the contributors really think God has led us to do something that's of use to the church here. And um, both this appendix on doing communion, I mean, the insights there could be applied to doing baptism too, or doing major services like the vigil. Um, but we, we think we have a, a useful, we wanted to have a useful gift to the church, and we think that we've done that. All of us who contributed to the books are all close acquaintances and um, cooperative colleagues with each other. I mean, we're willing to do consultations and workshops if once traveling starts again, if any of your listeners would like more of this in person. And I want to just add too, you know, we come coming at this as as Lester described at the beginning as a, you know, a class project, but um, the contributors to the book uh, speak for the other contributors. I mean, we have multiple pastors, dozens of years of uh, ministry experience uh, and pastoral and music roles. Um, you know, we're not coming at this from as outsiders to Christian worship or as from the academy. Um, we are also in the academy, but we come to that with our pastoral and church, local church sort of love and, and desire. So um, the book you know, is very much informed by, by a pastoral practice. Thank you to Lester Ruth and Adam Perez and Zach Barnes for this wonderful conversation. Uh, there are There's information in the show notes where you can get in touch with folks, find out where to purchase the book, which would be like everywhere where you can purchase books. But, you know, if you want a link, it's at the show notes, musicandthechurch.com. You can also find lots of resources there, including my weekly newsletter and podcast for church staff, Getting to Nimble. And if you've enjoyed this show, please share it with your colleagues. The best way for them to find it is by word of mouth. If you'd like to get in touch, send me an email at musicandthechurch at gmail.com. I'll be back next month with another episode of Music and the Church with Sarah Bariza, also on Flow.